Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We continue this reading with Book 2, Chapter 14, Section 5. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 5. But in our age also has arisen a not less fatal monster, Michael Servetus, who, for the Son of God, has substituted a figment composed of the essence of God, spirit, flesh, and three uncreated elements. First, indeed, he denies that Christ is the Son of God, for any other reason than because he was begotten in the womb of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit. The tendency of this crafty device is to make out, by destroying the distinction of the two natures, that Christ is somewhat composed of God and man, and yet is not to be deemed God and man. His aim throughout is to establish that before Christ was manifested in the flesh, there were only shadowy figures in God, the truth or effect of which existed for the first time when the Word, who had been destined to that honor, truly began to be the Son of God. We indeed acknowledge that the Mediator, who was born of the Virgin, is properly the Son of God. And how could the man Christ be a mirror of the inestimable grace of God, had not the dignity been conferred upon him both of being and of being called the only begotten Son of God? Meanwhile, however, the definition of the church stands unmoved, that he is accounted the Son of God, because the word begotten by the Father before all ages assumed human nature by hypostatic union, a term used by ancient writers to denote the union which of two natures constitutes one person, and invented to refute the dream of Nestorius, who pretended that the Son of God dwelt in the flesh in such a manner as not to be at the same time man. Servetus calumniously charges us with making the Son of God double, when we say that the eternal word before he was clothed with flesh was already the Son of God, as if we said anything more than that he was manifested in the flesh. Although he was God before he became man, he did not therefore begin to be a new God. Nor is there any greater absurdity in holding that the Son of God, who by eternal generation ever had the property of being a son, appeared in the flesh. This is intimated by the angel's words to Mary, quote, That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God, unquote, Luke 1, verse 35. As if he had said that the name of God, which was more obscure under the law, would become celebrated and universally known. Corresponding to this is the passage of Paul, that being now the sons of God by Christ, we, quote, have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, unquote, Romans 8, verse 15. Were not also the holy patriarchs of old reckoned among the sons of God? Yea, trusting to this privilege, they invoked God as their father. 
but because ever since the only begotten Son of God came forth into the world, his celestial paternity has been more clearly manifested, Paul assigns this to the kingdom of Christ as its distinguishing feature. We must, however, constantly hold that God never was a father to angels and men save in respect of his only begotten Son, that men especially who by their iniquity were rendered hateful to God are sons by gratuitous adoption because he is a son by nature. Nor is there anything in the assertion of Servetus that this depends on the filiation which God had decreed with himself. Here we deal not with figures, as expiation by the blood of beasts was shown to be. But since they could not be the sons of God in reality, unless their adoption was founded in the head, it is against all reason to deprive the head of that which is common to the members. I go farther. Since the scripture gives the names of sons of God to the angels, whose great dignity in this respect depended not on the future redemption, Christ must in order take precedence of them that he may reconcile the Father to them. I will again briefly repeat and add the same thing concerning the human race. Since angels as well as men were at first created on the condition that God should be the common father of both, if it is true, as Paul says, that Christ always was the head, quote, the firstborn of every creature, that in all things he might have the preeminence, unquote, Colossians 1, verses 15 and 18, I think I may legitimately infer that he existed as the Son of God before the creation of the world. Section 6. But if his filiation, if I may so express it, had a beginning at the time when he was manifested in the flesh, it follows that he was a son in respect of human nature also. Servetus and others similarly frenzied hold that Christ who appeared in the flesh is the Son of God inasmuch as, but for his incarnation, he could not have possessed this name. Let them now answer me whether, according to both natures and in respect of both, he is a son. So indeed they prate. But Paul's doctrine is very different. We acknowledge indeed that Christ in human nature is called a son, not like believers by gratuitous adoption merely, but the true, natural, and therefore only son, this being the mark which distinguishes him from all others. Those of us who are regenerated to a new life God honors with the name of sons. The name of true and only begotten son he bestows on Christ alone. But how is he an only son in so great a multitude of brethren, except that he possesses by nature what we acquire by gift? This honor we extend to his whole character of mediator, so that he who was born of a virgin and on the cross offered himself in sacrifice to the Father is truly and properly the Son of God, but still in respect of his Godhead, as Paul teaches when he says that he, quote, was separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, unquote. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. When distinctly calling him the Son of David according to the flesh, why should he also say that he was, quote, declared to be the Son of God, unquote, if he meant not to intimate that this depended on something else than his incarnation? For in the same sense in which he elsewhere says that, quote, though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God, unquote, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, so he now draws a distinction between the two natures. They must certainly admit that as on account of his mother he was called the son of David, so on account of his father he is the son of God, and that in some respect differing from his human nature. The scripture gives him both names, calling him at one time the son of God, and another the son of man. As to the latter, there can be no question that he is called a son in accordance with the phraseology of the Hebrew language, because he is of the offspring of Adam. 
On the other hand, I maintain that he is called a son on account of his Godhead and eternal essence because it is no less congruous to refer to his divine nature as being called the Son of God than to refer to his human nature as being called the Son of Man. In fine, in the passage which I have quoted, Paul does not mean that he who, according to the flesh, was begotten of the seed of David, was declared to be the Son of God in any other sense than he elsewhere teaches that Christ, who descended of the Jews according to the flesh, is, quote, overall God-blessed forever, unquote. Romans 9, verse 5. But if in both passages the distinction of two natures is pointed out, how can it be denied that he who according to the flesh is the son of man is also in respect of his divine nature the son of God? Section 7. They indeed find a blustering defense of their heresy in its being said that, quote, God spared not his own son, unquote, and in the communication of the angel that he who was to be born of the virgin should be called the, quote, son of the highest, unquote. Romans 8, verse 32, and Luke 1, verse 32. But before pluming themselves on this futile objection, let them for a little consider with us what weight there is in their argument. If it is legitimately concluded that at conception he began to be the Son of God, because he who has been conceived is called his Son, it will follow that he began to be the Word after his manifestation in the flesh, because John declares that the Word of life of which he spoke was that which, quote, our hands have handled, unquote. First John 1, verse 1. In like manner we read in the prophet, quote, Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Israel, yet out of thee shall he come forth, that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, unquote. Micah 5, verse 2. How will they be forced to interpret if they will follow such a method of arguing? I have declared that we by no means assent to Nestorius, who imagined a twofold Christ, when we maintain that Christ, by means of brotherly union, made us sons of God with himself, because in the flesh which he took from us he is the only begotten Son of God. And Augustine wisely reminds us that he is a bright mirror of the wonderful and singular grace of God, because as man he obtained honor which he could not merit. With this distinction, therefore, according to the flesh, was Christ honored even from the womb, these to be the Son of God. Still, in the unity of person, we are not to imagine any intermixture which takes away from the Godhead what is peculiar to it. Nor is it more absurd that the eternal word of God and Christ, uniting the two natures in one person, should in different ways be called the Son of God, than that he should in various respects be called at one time the Son of God, at another the Son of Man. Nor are we more embarrassed by another cavil of Servetus, viz. that Christ, before he appeared in the flesh, is nowhere called the Son of God, except under a figure. For though the description of him was then more obscure, yet it has already been clearly proved that he was not otherwise the eternal God, than as he was the word begotten of the eternal Father. Nor is the name applicable to the office of mediator which he undertook, except in that he was God manifest in the flesh." nor would God have thus from the beginning been called a father, had there not been even then a mutual relation to the Son, quote, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, unquote. Ephesians 3, verse 15. Hence it is easy to infer that under the law and the prophets he was the Son of God before this name was celebrated in the church. But if we are to dispute about the word merely, Solomon, speaking of the incomprehensibility of God, affirms that his Son is like himself, incomprehensible. Quote, what is his name, and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Unquote. Proverbs 30, verse 4. 
I am well aware that with the contentious this passage will not have sufficient weight, nor do I found much upon it, except as showing the malignant cavils of those who affirm that Christ is the Son of God only in so far as he became man. We may add that all the most ancient writers with one mouth and consent testified the same thing so plainly that the effrontery is no less ridiculous than detestable, which dares to oppose us with Irenaeus and Tertullian, both of whom acknowledge that he who was afterwards visibly manifested was the invisible Son of God. Section 8 But though Servetus heaped together a number of horrid dogmas to which, perhaps, others would not subscribe, you will find that all who refuse to acknowledge the Son of God except in the flesh are obliged, when urged more closely, to admit that he was a son, for no other reason than because he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit, just like the absurdity of the ancient Manichees, that the soul of man was derived by transfusion from God, from its being said that he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, Genesis 2, verse 7. For they lay such stress on the name of Son that they leave no distinction between the natures, but babblingly maintain that the man Christ is the Son of God because according to his human nature he was begotten of God. Thus the eternal generation of wisdom celebrated by Solomon in Proverbs 8, verse 22 and following is destroyed and no kind of Godhead exists in the Mediator or a phantom is substituted instead of man. The grosser delusions of Servetus by which he imposed upon himself and some others, it were useful to refute that pious readers might be warned by the example to confine themselves within the bounds of soberness and modesty. However, I deem it superfluous here, as I have already done it in a special treatise. The whole comes to this, that the Son of God was from the beginning an idea, and was even then a preordained man, who was to be the essential image of God nor does he acknowledge any other word of God except in external splendor. The generation he interprets to mean that from the beginning a purpose of generating the Son was begotten in God, and that this purpose extended itself by act to creation. Meanwhile, he confounds the Spirit with the Word, saying that God arranged the invisible Word and Spirit into flesh and soul. In short, in his view, the typifying of Christ occupies the place of generation. But he says that he who was then in appearance a shadowy son was at length begotten by the word to which he attributes a generating power. From this it will follow that dogs and swine are not less sons of God because created of the original seed of the divine word. But although he compounds Christ of three uncreated elements, that he may be begotten of the essence of God, he pretends that he is the firstborn among the creatures, in such a sense that, according to their degree, stones have the same essential divinity. But lest he should seem to strip Christ of his deity, he admits that his flesh is, Greek word, Omicron, Mu, Omicron, Omicron, Upsilon, Delta, Iota, Omicron, Nu, Omo, Oudion of the same substance with God, and that the Word was made man by the conversion of flesh into deity. Thus, while he cannot comprehend that Christ was the Son of God until his flesh came forth from the essence of God and was converted into deity, he reduces the eternal personality, hypostasis, of the Word to nothing, and robs us of the Son of David, who was the promised Redeemer. It is true, he repeatedly declares that the Son was begotten of God by knowledge and predestination, but that he was at length made man out of that matter which, from the beginning, shone with God in the three elements, and afterwards appeared in the first light of the world, in the cloud and the pillar of fire. How shamefully inconsistent with himself he ever and anon becomes, it were too tedious to relate. 
From this brief account, sound readers will gather that by the subtle ambiguities of this infatuated man, the hope of salvation was utterly extinguished. For if the flesh were the Godhead itself, it would cease to be its temple. Now the only Redeemer we can have is he who, being begotten of the seed of Abraham and David according to the flesh, truly became man. But he erroneously insists on the expression of John, quote, The word was made flesh, unquote. As these words refute the heresy of Nestorius, so they give no countenance to the impious fiction of which Eutyches was the inventor, since all that the evangelist intended was to assert a unity of person in two natures. Chapter 15 Three things chiefly to be regarded in Christ, viz. His offices of prophet, king, and priest. There are six sections. Section 1 Though heretics pretend the name of Christ, truly does Augustine affirm that the foundation is not common to them with the godly, but belongs exclusively to the church. For if those things which pertain to Christ be diligently considered, it will be found that Christ is with them in name only, not in reality. Thus in the present day, though the papists have the words, Son of God, Redeemer of the world, sounding in their mouths, yet, because contented with an empty name, they deprive him of his virtue and dignity. What Paul says of, quote, not holding the head, unquote, is truly applicable to them. Colossians 2, verse 19. Therefore, that faith may find in Christ a solid ground of salvation, and so rest in him, we must set out with this principle that the office which he received from the Father consists of three parts. For he was appointed both prophet, king, and priest, though little were gained by holding the names unaccompanied by knowledge of the end and use. These two are spoken of in the papacy, but frigidly and with no great benefit, the full meaning comprehended under each title not being understood. We formerly observed that though God, by supplying an uninterrupted succession of prophets, never left his people destitute of useful doctrine, such as might suffice for salvation, yet the minds of believers were always impressed with the conviction that the full light of understanding was to be expected only on the advent of the Messiah. This expectation, accordingly, had reached even the Samaritans, to whom the true religion had never been made known. This is plain from the expression of the woman, quote, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things, unquote. John 4, verse 25. Nor was this a mere random presumption which had entered the minds of the Jews. They believed what sure oracles had taught them. One of the most remarkable passages is that of Isaiah, quote, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people, unquote. Isaiah 55, 4. That is, in the same way in which he had previously in another place styled him, quote, Wonderful, Counselor, unquote. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For this reason, the apostle, commending the perfection of gospel doctrine, first says that, quote, God at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the prophets, unquote, and then adds that he, quote, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, unquote. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. But as the common office of the prophets was to hold the church in suspense, and at the same time supported until the advent of the mediator, we read that the faithful during the dispersion complained that they were deprived of that ordinary privilege. Quote, we see not our signs. There is no more any prophet, neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. Unquote. Psalm 74, verse 9. 
But when Christ was now not far distant, a period was assigned to Daniel, quote, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, unquote. Daniel 9, verse 24. Not only that the authority of the prediction there spoken of might be established, but that believers might, for a time, patiently submit to the want of the prophets, the fulfillment and completion of all the prophecies being at hand. Section 2. Moreover, it is to be observed that the name Christ refers to those three offices, for we know that under the law prophets as well as priests and kings were anointed with holy oil, whence also the celebrated name of Messiah was given to the promised mediator. But although I admit, as indeed I have elsewhere shown, that he was so called from a view to the nature of a kingly office, still the prophetical and sacerdotal unctions have their proper place and must not be overlooked. The former is expressly mentioned by Isaiah in these words, quote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, unquote. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. We see that he was anointed by the Spirit to be a herald and witness of his Father's grace and not in the usual way, for he is distinguished from other teachers who had a similar office. And here again, it is to be observed that the unction which he received in order to perform the office of teacher was not for himself, but for his whole body, that a corresponding efficacy of the Spirit might always accompany the preaching of the gospel. This, however, remains certain, that by the perfection of doctrine which he brought, an end was put to all the prophecies, so that those who, not contented with the gospel, annex somewhat extraneous to it, derogate from its authority. The voice which thundered from heaven, quote, This is my beloved Son, hear him, unquote, gave him a special privilege above all other teachers. Then from him as head, this unction is diffused through the members, as Joel has foretold, quote, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, unquote. Joel 2, verse 28. Paul's expressions that he was, quote, made unto us wisdom, unquote, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, and elsewhere that in him, quote, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, unquote, Colossians 2, verse 3, have a somewhat different meaning, namely, that out of him there is nothing worth knowing, and that those who by faith apprehend his true character possess the boundless immensity of heavenly blessings. For which reason he elsewhere says, quote, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified, unquote, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 and most justly, for it is unlawful to go beyond the simplicity of the gospel. The purpose of this prophetical dignity in Christ is to teach us that in the doctrine which he delivered is substantially included a wisdom which is perfect in all its parts. Section 3. I come to the kingly office, of which it were in vain to speak, without previously reminding the reader that its nature is spiritual, because it is from thence we learn its efficacy, the benefits it confers, its whole power, and eternity. Eternity, moreover, which in Daniel an angel attributes to the office of Christ, Daniel 2, verse 44, in Luke an angel justly applies to the salvation of his people, Luke 1, verse 33. But this is also twofold, and must be viewed in two ways. The one pertains to the whole body of the church, the other is proper to each member. To the former is to be referred what is said in the Psalms, quote, Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven. Unquote. Psalm 
89 verses 35 and 37. There can be no doubt that God here promises that he will be, by the hand of his Son, the eternal governor and defender of the church. In none but Christ will the fulfillment of this prophecy be found, since immediately after Solomon's death, the kingdom in a great measure lost its dignity and, with ignominy to the family of David, was transferred to a private individual. Afterwards decaying by degrees, it at length came to a sad and dishonorable end. In the same sense are we to understand the exclamation of Isaiah, quote, Who shall declare his generation? Unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 8. For he asserts that Christ will so survive death as to be connected with his members. Therefore, as often as we hear that Christ is armed with eternal power, let us learn that the perpetuity of the church is thus effectually secured, that amid the turbulent agitations by which it is constantly harassed, and the grievous and fearful commotions which threaten innumerable disasters, it still remains safe. Thus, when David derides the audacity of the enemy, who attempt to throw off the yoke of God and his anointed, and says that kings and nations rage, quote, in vain, unquote, Psalm 2, verses 2 through 4, because he who sitteth in the heaven is strong enough to repel their assaults, assuring believers of the perpetual preservation of the church, he animates them to have good hope whenever it is occasionally oppressed. So, in another place, when speaking in the person of God, he says, quote, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Unquote. Psalm 110, verse 1. He reminds us that however numerous and powerful the enemies who conspire to assault the church, they are not possessed of strength sufficient to prevail against the immortal decree by which he appointed his son eternal king. Whence it follows that the devil, with the whole power of the world, can never possibly destroy the church, which is founded on the eternal throne of Christ. Then, in regard to the special use to be made by each believer, this same eternity ought to elevate us to the hope of a blessed immortality. For we see that everything which is earthly and of the world is temporary and soon fades away. Christ, therefore, to raise our hope to the heavens, declares that his kingdom is not of this world. John 18, verse 36. In fine, let each of us, when he hears that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual, be roused by the thought to entertain the hope of a better life and to expect that, as it is now protected by the hand of Christ, so it will be fully realized in a future life. Section 4. That the strength and utility of the kingdom of Christ cannot, as we have said, be fully perceived, without recognizing it as spiritual, is sufficiently apparent, even from this, that having, during the whole course of our lives, to war under the cross, our condition here is bitter and wretched. What then would it avail us to be ranged under the government of a heavenly king if its benefits were not realized beyond the present earthly life? We must therefore know that the happiness which is promised to us in Christ does not consist in external advantages, such as leading a joyful and tranquil life, abounding in wealth, being secure against all injury, and having an affluence of delight such as the flesh is wont to long for, but properly belongs to the heavenly life. As in the world, the prosperous and desirable condition of a people consists partly in the abundance of temporal good and domestic peace, and partly in the strong protection which gives security against external violence. So Christ also enriches his people with all things necessary to the eternal salvation of their souls, and fortifies them with courage to stand unassailable by all the attacks of spiritual foes. 
whence we infer that he reigns more for us than for himself, and that both within us and without us, that being replenished, insofar as God knows to be expedient, with the gifts of the Spirit, of which we are naturally destitute, we may feel from their first fruits that we are truly united to God for perfect blessedness, and then, trusting to the power of the same Spirit, may not doubt that we shall always be victorious against the devil, the world, and everything that can do us harm. To this effect was our Savior's reply to the Pharisees, quote, The kingdom of God is within you, unquote. Quote, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, unquote. Luke 17, verses 21 and 22. It is probable that on his declaring himself to be that king under whom the highest blessing of God was to be expected, they had in derision asked him to produce his insignia, but to prevent those who were already more than enough inclined to the earth from dwelling on its pomp, he bids them enter into their consciences for, quote, the kingdom of God, unquote, is, quote, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, unquote. Romans 14, verse 17. These words briefly teach what the kingdom of Christ bestows upon us, not being earthly or carnal and so subject to corruption, but spiritual it raises us even to eternal life so that we can patiently live at present under toil, hunger, cold, contempt, disgrace, and other annoyances, contented with this that our king will never abandon us, but will supply our necessities until our warfare is ended, and we are called to triumph such being the nature of his kingdom, that he communicates to us whatever he received of his Father. Since then he arms and equips us by his power, adorns us with splendor and magnificence, enriches us with wealth. We here find most abundant cause of glorying, and also are inspired with boldness, so that we can contend intrepidly with the devil, sin, and death. In fine, clothed with his righteousness, we can bravely surmount all the insults of the world, and as he replenishes us liberally with his gifts, so we can in our turn bring forth fruit unto his glory. Section 5. Accordingly, his royal unction is not set before us as composed of oil or aromatic perfumes, but he is called the Christ of God because, quote, the Spirit of the Lord, unquote, rested upon him. Quote, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, unquote. Isaiah 11, verse 2. This is the oil of joy, with which the psalmist declares that he was anointed above his fellows. Psalm 45, verse 7. For as has been said, he was not enriched privately for himself, but that he might refresh the parched and hungry with his abundance. For as the Father is said to have given the Spirit to the Son without measure, John 3, verse 34, so the reason is expressed that we might all receive of his fullness and grace for grace, John 1, verse 16. From this fountain flows the copious supply, of which Paul makes mention, Ephesians 4, verse 7, by which grace is variously distributed to believers according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Here we have ample confirmation of what I said, that the kingdom of Christ consists in the Spirit, and not in earthly delights or pomp, and that hence, in order to be partakers with him, we must renounce the world. A visible symbol of this grace was exhibited at the baptism of Christ, when the Spirit rested upon him in the form of a dove. To designate the Spirit and his gifts by the term unction is not new, and ought not to seem absurd. See 1 John 2, verses 20 and 27, because this is the only quarter from which we derive life. But especially in what regards the heavenly life, there is not a drop of vigor in us save what the Holy Spirit instills, who has chosen his seat in Christ, that thence the heavenly riches of which we are destitute might flow to us in copious abundance.
But because believers stand invincible in the strength of their king and his spiritual riches abound towards them, they are not improperly called Christians. Moreover, from this eternity of which we have spoken, there is nothing derogatory in the expression of Paul, quote, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. And also, quote, Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. For the meaning merely is that in that perfect glory the administration of the kingdom will not be such as it now is. For the Father hath given all power to the Son, that by his hand he may govern, cherish, sustain us, keep us under his guardianship, and give assistance to us. Thus, while we wander far as pilgrims from God, Christ interposes that he may gradually bring us to full communion with God. And indeed, his sitting at the right hand of the Father has the same meaning as if he was called the vicegerent of the Father, entrusted with the whole power of the government. For God is pleased, immediately, so to speak, in his person to rule and defend the church. Thus also his being seated at the right hand of the Father is explained by Paul in the epistle to the Ephesians to mean that, quote, he is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 22. Nor is this different in purport from what he elsewhere teaches, that God hath, quote, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Unquote. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. For in these words also he commends an arrangement in the kingdom of Christ, which is necessary for our present infirmity. Thus Paul rightly infers that God will then be the only head of the church, because the office of Christ in defending the church shall then have been completed. For the same reason, Scripture throughout calls him Lord, the Father having appointed him over us for the express purpose of exercising his government through him. For though many lordships are celebrated in the world, yet Paul says, quote, To us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Whence it is justly inferred that he is the same God who, by the mouth of Isaiah, declared, quote, The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Unquote. Isaiah 33, verse 22. For though he everywhere describes all the power which he possesses as the benefit and gift of the Father, the meaning simply is that he reigns by divine authority, because his reason for assuming the office of mediator was that descending from the bosom and incomprehensible glory of the Father, he might draw near to us. Wherefore there is the greater reason, that we all should with one consent prepare to obey, and with the greatest alacrity yield implicit obedience to his will. For as he unites the offices of king and pastor towards believers who voluntarily submit to him, so on the other hand we are told that he wields an iron scepter to break and bruise all the rebellious like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 verse 9. We are also told that he will be the judge of the Gentiles, that he will cover the earth with dead bodies and level down every opposing height. Psalm 110 verse 6. Of this, examples are seen at present, but full proof will be given at the final judgment, which may be properly regarded as the last act of his reign. 
Section 6. With regard to his priesthood, we must briefly hold its end and used to be that as a mediator, free from all taint, he may, by his own holiness, procure the favor of God for us. But because a deserved curse obstructs the entrance, and God in his character of judge is hostile to us, expiation must necessarily intervene, that as a priest employed to appease the wrath of God, he may reinstate us in his favor. Wherefore, in order that Christ might fulfill this office, it behoved him to appear with a sacrifice. For even under the law of the priesthood it was forbidden to enter the sanctuary without blood, to teach the worshiper that however the priest might interpose to deprecate, God could not be propitiated without the expiation of sin. On this subject the apostle discourses at length in the epistle to the Hebrews, from the seventh almost to the end of the tenth chapter. The sum comes to this, that the honor of the priesthood was competent to none but Christ, because by the sacrifice of his death he wiped away our guilt and made satisfaction for sin. Of the great importance of this matter we are reminded by that solemn oath which God uttered, and of which he declared he would not repent, quote, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, unquote. Psalm 110, verse 4. For doubtless his purpose was to ratify that point on which he knew that our salvation chiefly hinged. For as has been said, there is no access to God for us or for our prayers until the priest, purging away our defilements, sanctify us and obtain for us that favor of which the impurity of our lives and hearts deprives us. Thus we see that if the benefit and efficacy of Christ's priesthood is to reach us, the commencement must be with his death. Whence it follows that he, by whose aid we obtain favor, must be a perpetual intercessor. From this again arises not only confidence in prayer, but also the tranquility of pious minds, while they recline in safety on the paternal indulgence of God, and feel assured that whatever has been consecrated by the Mediator is pleasing to him. But since God, under the law, ordered sacrifices of beasts to be offered to him, there was a different and new arrangement in regard to Christ, viz., that he should be at once victim and priest, because no other fit satisfaction for sin could be found, nor was any one worthy of the honor of offering an only begotten Son to God. Christ now bears the office of priest, not only that by the eternal law of reconciliation he may render the Father favorable and propitious to us, but also admit us into this most honorable alliance. For we, though in ourselves polluted, in him being priests, Revelation 1 verse 6, offer ourselves and our all to God, and freely enter the heavenly sanctuary, so that the sacrifices of prayer and praise which we present are grateful and of sweet odor before him. To this effect are the words of Christ, quote, For their sakes I sanctify myself, unquote. John 17 verse 19. For being clothed with his holiness, inasmuch as he has devoted us to the Father with himself, otherwise we were an abomination before him, we please him as if we were pure and clean, nay, even sacred. Hence that unction of the sanctuary of which mention is made in Daniel, Daniel 9, verse 24. For we must attend to the contrast between this unction and the shadowy one which was then in use as if the angel had said that when the shadows were dispersed, there would be a clear priesthood in the person of Christ. The more detestable, therefore, is the fiction of those who, not content with the priesthood of Christ, have dared to take it upon themselves to sacrifice him, a thing daily attempted in the papacy, where the Mass is represented as an immolation of Christ. Chapter 16 How Christ Performed the Office of Redeemer in Procuring Our Salvation The Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of Christ there are 19 sections. Section 1. All that we have hitherto said of Christ leads to this one result, 
that condemned, dead, and lost in ourselves, we must in him seek righteousness, deliverance, life, and salvation, as we are taught by the celebrated words of Peter, quote, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, unquote. Acts 4, verse 12. The name of Jesus was not given him at random, or fortuitously, or by the will of man, but was brought from heaven by an angel, as the herald of the supreme decree. The reason also being added, quote, For he shall save his people from their sins, unquote. Matthew 1, verse 21. In these words, attention should be paid to what we have elsewhere observed, that the office of Redeemer was assigned him in order that he might be our Savior. Still, however, redemption would be defective if it did not conduct us by an uninterrupted progression to the final goal of safety. Therefore, the moment we turn aside from him in the minutest degree, salvation, which resides entirely in him, gradually disappears, so that all who do not rest in him voluntarily deprive themselves of all grace. The observation of Bernard well deserves to be remembered. The name of Jesus is not only light, but food also, yea, oil, without which all the food of the soul is dry. Salt, without which as a condiment whatever is set before us is insipid, in fine, honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, joy in the heart, and, at the same time, medicine. Every discourse where this name is not heard is absurd. But here it is necessary diligently to consider in what way we may obtain salvation from him, that we may not only be persuaded that he is the author of it, but having embraced whatever is sufficient as a sure foundation of our faith, may eschew all that might make us waver. For seeing no man can descend into himself, and seriously consider what he is, without feeling that God is angry and at enmity with him, and therefore anxiously longing for the means of regaining his favor, this cannot be without satisfaction. The certainty here required is of no ordinary description. Sinners, until freed from guilt, being always liable to the wrath and curse of God, who, as he is a just judge, cannot permit his law to be violated with impunity, but is armed for vengeance. Section 2 but before we proceed farther, we must see in passing how can it be said that God, who prevents us with his mercy, was our enemy until he was reconciled to us by Christ. For how could he have given us in his only begotten Son a singular pledge of his love, if he had not previously embraced us with free favor? As there thus arises some appearance of contradiction, I will explain the difficulty. The mode in which the Spirit usually speaks in Scripture is that God was the enemy of men until they were restored to favor by the death of Christ. Romans 5, verse 10, that they were cursed until their iniquity was expiated by the sacrifice of Christ, Galatians 3, verses 10 and 13, that they were separated from God until by means of Christ's body they were received into union, Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. Such modes of expression are accommodated to our capacity, that we may the better understand how miserable and calamitous our condition is without Christ. For were it not said in clear terms that divine wrath and vengeance and eternal death lay upon us, we should be less sensible of our wretchedness without the mercy of God, and less disposed to value the blessing of deliverance. For example, let a person be told, had God at the time you were a sinner hated you, and cast you off as you deserved, horrible destruction must have been your doom. But spontaneously, and of free indulgence, he retained you in his favor, 
not suffering you to be estranged from him, and in this way rescued you from danger. The person will indeed be affected and made sensible in some degree how much he owes to the mercy of God. But again let him be told as scripture teaches that he was estranged from God by sin, an heir of wrath, exposed to the curse of eternal death, excluded from all hope of salvation, a complete alien from the blessing of God, the slave of Satan, captive under the yoke of sin, in fine, doomed to horrible destruction and already involved in it, that then Christ interposed, took the punishment upon himself, and bore what by the just judgment of God was impending over sinners, with his own blood expiated the sins which rendered them hateful to God, by this expiation satisfied and duly propitiated God the Father, by this intercession appeased his anger, on this basis founded peace between God and men, and by this tie secured the divine benevolence toward them. Will not these considerations move him the more deeply, the more strikingly they represent the greatness of the calamity from which he was delivered? In short, since our mind cannot lay hold of life through the mercy of God with sufficient eagerness, or receive it with becoming gratitude unless previously impressed with the fear of the divine anger, and dismayed at the thought of eternal death, we are so instructed by divine truth as to perceive that without Christ, God is in a manner hostile to us, and has his arm raised for our destruction. Thus taught, we look to Christ alone for divine favor and paternal love. Section 3. Though this is said in accommodation to the weakness of our capacity, it is not said falsely. For God, who is perfect righteousness, cannot love the iniquity which he sees in all. All of us, therefore, have that within which deserves the hatred of God. Hence, in respect, first, of our corrupt nature, and secondly, of the depraved conduct following upon it, we are all offensive to God, guilty in his sight, and by nature the children of hell. But as the Lord wills not to destroy in us that which is his own, he still finds something in us which is kindness he can love. For though it is by our own fault that we are sinners, we are still his creatures. Though we have brought death upon ourselves, he had created us for life. Thus, mere gratuitous love prompts him to receive us into favor. But if there is a perpetual and irreconcilable repugnance between righteousness and iniquity, so long as we remain sinners, we cannot be completely received. Therefore, in order that all ground of offense may be removed, and he may completely reconcile us to himself, he, by means of the expiation set forth in the death of Christ, abolishes all the evil that is in us, so that we, formerly impure and unclean, now appear in his sight just and holy. Accordingly, God the Father, by his love, prevents and anticipates our reconciliation in Christ. Nay, it is because he first loves us that he afterwards reconciles us to himself. But because the iniquity which deserves the indignation of God remains in us until the death of Christ comes to our aid, and that iniquity is in his sight accursed and condemned, we are not admitted to full and sure communion with God unless in so far as Christ unites us. And therefore, if we would indulge the hope of having God placable and propitious to us, we must fix our eyes and minds on Christ alone. As it is to him alone, it is owing that our sins, which necessarily provoke the wrath of God, are not imputed to us. Section 4. For this reason, Paul says that God, quote, hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. These things are clear and conformable to Scripture, and admirably reconcile the passages in which it is said that, quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, unquote, John 3, verse 16, and yet that it was, quote, 
when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, unquote, Romans 5, verse 10. But to give additional assurance to those who require the authority of the ancient church, I will quote a passage of Augustine to the same effect, quote, Incomprehensible and immutable is the love of God. For it was not after we were reconciled to him by the blood of his Son that he began to love us, but he loved us before the foundation of the world, that with his only begotten Son we too might be sons of God before we were anything at all. Our being reconciled by the death of Christ must not be understood as if the Son reconciled us in order that the Father, then hating, might begin to love us, but that we were reconciled to him already, loving, though at enmity with us because of sin. To the truth of both propositions, we have the attestation of the Apostle. Inner quote, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Close, inner quote, Romans 5, verse 8. Therefore he had this love towards us, even when, exercising enmity towards him, we were the workers of iniquity. Accordingly, in a manner wondrous and divine, he loved even when he hated us. For he hated us when we were such as he had not made us, and yet because our iniquity had not destroyed his work in every respect, he knew in regard to each one of us both to hate what he had made and love what he had made. Unquote. Such are the words of Augustine. Section 5. When it is asked, then, how Christ, by abolishing sin, removed the enmity between God and us, and purchased a righteousness which made him favorable and kind to us, it may be answered generally that he accomplished this by the whole course of his obedience. This is proved by the testimony of Paul, quote, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, unquote. Romans 5, verse 19. And indeed, he elsewhere extends the ground of pardon, which exempts from the curse of the law to the whole life of Christ. Quote, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Unquote. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Thus, even at his baptism, he declared that a part of righteousness was fulfilled by his yielding obedience to the command of the Father. In short, from the moment when he assumed the form of a servant, he began, in order to redeem us, to pay the price of deliverance. Scripture, however, the more certainly to define the mode of salvation, ascribes it peculiarly and specially to the death of Christ. He himself declares that he gave his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. Paul teaches that he died for our sins. Romans 4, verse 25. John Baptist exclaimed, quote, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Unquote. John 1, verse 29. Paul, in another passage, declares, quote, that we are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Unquote. Romans 3, verse 25. Again, being, quote, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Unquote. Romans 5, verse 9. Again, quote, He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. I will not search out all the passages, for the list would be endless, and many are afterwards to be quoted in their order. In the Confession of Faith, called the Apostles' Creed, the transition is admirably made from the birth of Christ to his death and resurrection, in which the completion of a perfect salvation consists. Still, there is no exclusion of the other part of obedience which he performed in life. 
Thus Paul comprehends from the beginning even to the end, his having assumed the form of a servant, humbled himself, and to become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, verse 7. And indeed the first step in obedience was his voluntary subjection, for the sacrifice would have been unavailing to justification if not offered spontaneously. Hence our Lord, after testifying, quote, I lay down my life for the sheep, unquote, distinctly adds, quote, No man taketh it from me, unquote. John 10, verses 15 and 18. In the same sense, Isaiah says, quote, Like a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 7. The Gospel history relates that he came forth to meet the soldiers, and in presence of Pilate, instead of defending himself, stood to receive judgment. This indeed he did not without a struggle, for he had assumed our infirmities also, and in this way he behoved him to prove that he was yielding obedience to his father. It was no ordinary example of incomparable love towards us to struggle with the dire terrors, and amid fearful tortures to cast away all care of himself that he might provide for us. We must bear in mind that Christ could not duly propitiate God without renouncing his own feelings and subjecting himself entirely to his Father's will. To this effect, the Apostle absolutely quotes a passage from the Psalms, quote, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, unquote. Hebrews 10, verse 5, and Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Thus, as trembling consciences find no rest without sacrifice and ablution by which sins are expiated, we are properly directed thither, the source of our life being placed in the death of Christ. Moreover, as the curse consequent upon guilt remained for the final judgment of God, one principal point in the narrative is his condemnation before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, to teach us that the punishment to which we were liable was inflicted on that just one. We could not escape the fearful judgment of God, and Christ, that he might rescue us from it, submitted to be condemned by a mortal, nay, by a wicked and profane man. For the name of governor is mentioned not only to support the credibility of the narrative, but to remind us of what Isaiah says, that, quote, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, unquote, and that, quote, with his stripes we are healed, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 5. For, in order to remove our condemnation, it was not sufficient to endure any kind of death. To satisfy our ransom, it was necessary to select a mode of death in which he might deliver us, both by giving himself up to condemnation and undertaking our expiation. Had he been cut off by assassins or slain in a seditious tumult, there could have been no kind of satisfaction in such a death. But when he is placed as a criminal at the bar, where witnesses are brought to give evidence against him, and the mouth of the judge condemns him to die, we see him sustaining the character of an offender and evildoer. Here we must attend the two points which had both been foretold by the prophets, and tend admirably to comfort and confirm our faith. When we read that Christ was led away from the judgment seat to execution, and was crucified between thieves, we have a fulfillment of the prophecy which is quoted by the evangelist, quote, He was numbered with the transgressors, unquote, Isaiah 53, verse 12, and Mark 15, verse 28. Why was it so? That he might bear the character of a sinner, not of a just or innocent person, inasmuch as he met death on account not of innocence, but of sin. On the other hand, when we read that he was acquitted by the same list that condemned him, for Pilate was forced once and again to bear public testimony to his innocence, let us call to mind what is said by another prophet, quote, I restored that which I took not away, unquote. Psalm 69, verse 4. 
Thus we perceive Christ representing the character of a sinner and a criminal, while at the same time his innocence shines forth, and it becomes manifest that he suffers for another's and not for his own crime. He therefore suffered under Pontius Pilate, being thus by the formal sentence of the judge ranked among criminals, and yet he is declared innocent by the same judge when he affirms that he finds no cause of death in him. Our acquittal is in this, that the guilt which made us liable to punishment was transferred to the head of the Son of God. Isaiah 53, verse 12. We must specially remember this substitution in order that we may not be all our lives in trepidation and anxiety, as if the just vengeance which the Son of God transferred to himself were still impending over us. Section 6. The very form of the death embodies a striking truth. The cross was cursed not only in the opinion of man, but by the enactment of the divine law. Hence Christ, while suspended on it, subjects himself to the curse. And thus it behoved to be done, in order that the whole curse, which on account of our iniquities awaited us, or rather lay upon us, might be taken from us by being transferred to him. This was also shadowed in the law, since Hebrew words spelled out from Vine's Expository Dictionary, Fall, Res, Mem, Sin, Adap. The word by which sin itself is properly designated was applied to the sacrifices and expiations offered for sin. By this application of the term, the Spirit intended to intimate that they were a kind of Greek word, chi, alpha, theta, alpha, zeta, mu, alpha, tau, omega, nu, kathasmaton, purifications bearing by substitution the curse due to sin. But that which was represented figuratively in the Mosaic sacrifices is exhibited in Christ the archetype. Wherefore, in order to accomplish a full expiation, he made his soul, Hebrew word, by the Vines Expository Dictionary, Mem, Sin, Ela. That is, a propitiatory victim for sin, as the prophet says, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 10, on which the guilt and penalty being in a manner laid, ceases to be imputed to us. The apostle declares this more plainly when he says that, quote, He made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For the Son of God, though spotless and pure, took upon him the disgrace and ignominy of our iniquities, and in return clothed us with his purity. To the same thing he seems to refer when he says that he, quote, condemned sin in the flesh, unquote. Romans 8, verse 3. The Father, having destroyed the power of sin when it was transferred to the flesh of Christ. This term, therefore, indicates that Christ, in his death, was offered to the Father as a propitiatory victim that expiation being made by his sacrifice, we might cease to tremble at the divine wrath. It is now clear what the prophet means when he says that, quote, the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 6, namely, that as he was to wash away the pollutions of sins, they were transferred to him by invitation. Of this, the cross to which he was nailed was a symbol, as the apostle declares, quote, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, unquote. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. In the same way, Peter says that he, quote, There are sins in his own body on the tree, unquote. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Inasmuch as from the very symbol of the curse, we perceive more clearly that the burden with which we were oppressed was laid upon him. Nor are we to understand that by the curse which he endured he was himself overwhelmed, but rather that by enduring it he repressed, broke, annihilated all its force. 
Accordingly, faith apprehends acquittal in the condemnation of Christ, and blessing in his curse. Hence it is not without cause that Paul magnificently celebrates the triumph which Christ obtained upon the cross, as if the cross, the symbol of ignominy, had been converted into a triumphal chariot. For he says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That, quote, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, unquote. Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. Nor is this to be wondered at, for, as another apostle declares, Christ, quote, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, unquote. Hebrews 9, verse 14. And hence, the transformation of the cross, which were otherwise against its nature. But that these things may take deep root and have their seed in our inmost hearts, we must never lose sight of sacrifice and ablution. For, were not Christ a victim, we could have no sure conviction of his being. Greek words, Alpha, Pi, Omicron, Lambda, Upsilon, Tau, Rho, Omega, Sigma, Iota, Sigma. Apollotrosis. Alpha, Nu, Tau, Iota, Lambda, Upsilon, Tau, Rho, Omicron, Nu. Antilutron. Chi, Alpha, Iota. Chi. Iota. Lambda, Alpha, Sigma, Tau, Eta, Rho, Iota, Omicron, Nu. Elasterion. Our substitute, ransom, and propitiation. And hence mention is always made of blood whenever Scripture explains the mode of redemption. Although the shedding of Christ's blood was available not only for propitiation, but also acted as a labor to purge our defilements. Section 7. The Creed next mentions that he, quote, was dead and buried, unquote. Here again it is necessary to consider how he substituted himself in order to pay the price of our redemption. Death held us under its yoke, but he in our place delivered himself into its power, that he might exempt us from it. This the apostle means when he says, quote, that he tasted death for every man, unquote. Hebrews 2, verse 9. By dying he prevented us from dying, or, which is the same thing, he by his death purchased life for us. But in this he differed from us, that in permitting himself to be overcome of death, it was not so as to be engulfed in its abyss, but rather to annihilate it, as it must otherwise have annihilated us. He did not allow himself to be so subdued by it, as to be crushed by its power. He rather laid it prostrate, when it was impending over us, and exulting over us as already overcome. In fine, his object was, quote, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, unquote. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. This is the first fruit which his death produced to us. Another is that by fellowship with him he mortifies our earthly members, that they may not afterwards exert themselves in action, and kills the old man, that he may not hereafter be in vigor and bring forth fruit. An effect of his burial, moreover, is that we, as his fellows, are buried to sin. For when the apostle says that we are engrafted into the likeness of Christ's death, and that we are buried with him unto sin, that by his cross the world is crucified unto us, and we unto the world, and that we are dead with him, he not only exhorts us to manifest an example of his death, but declares that there is an efficacy in it which should appear in all Christians, if they would not render his death unfruitful and useless. Accordingly, in the death and burial of Christ, a twofold blessing is set before us, these deliverance from death, to which we were enslaved, and the mortification of our flesh. 
Romans 6, verse 5, Galatians 2, verse 19, and 6, verse 14, and Colossians 3, verse 3. Section 8. Here we must not omit the descent to hell, which was of no little importance to the accomplishment of redemption. For although it is apparent from the writings of the ancient fathers that the clause which now stands in the creed was not formally so much used in the churches, still, in giving a summary of doctrine, a place must be assigned to it, as containing a matter of great importance, which ought not by any means to be disregarded. Indeed, some of the ancient fathers do not omit it, and hence we may conjecture that having been inserted in the creed after a considerable lapse of time, it came into use in the church, not immediately, but by degrees. This much is uncontroverted, that it was in accordance with the general sentiment of all believers, since there is none of the fathers who does not mention Christ's descent into hell, though they have various modes of explaining it. But it is of little consequence by whom and at what time it was introduced. The chief thing to be attended to in the creed is that it furnishes us with a full and every way complete summary of faith, containing nothing but what has been derived from the infallible word of God. But should any still scruple to give it admission into the creed, it will shortly be made plain that the place which it holds in a summary of our redemption is so important that the omission of it greatly detracts from the benefit of Christ's death. There are some, again, who think that the article contains nothing new, but is merely a repetition in different words of what was previously said respecting burial, the word hell and furnace being often used in scripture for sepulchre. I admit the truth of what they allege with regard to the not unfrequent use of the term infernus for our sepulchre, but I cannot adopt their opinion for two obvious reasons. First, what folly would it have been, after explaining a matter attended with no difficulty in clear and unambiguous terms, afterwards to involve rather than illustrate it by clothing it in obscure phraseology? When two expressions having the same meaning are placed together, the latter ought to be explanatory of the former. But what kind of explanation would it be to say the expression, Christ was buried, means that he descended into hell? My second reason is the improbability that a superfluous tautology of this description should have crept into this compendium in which the principal articles of faith are set down summarily in the fewest possible number of words. I have no doubt that all who weigh the matter with some degree of care will here agree with me. Section 9 Others interpret differently these that Christ descended to the souls of the patriarchs who died under the law to announce his accomplished redemption and bring them out of the prison in which they were confined. To this effect, they rest the passage in the Psalms, quote, He hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder, unquote. Psalm 107, verse 16. And also the passage in Zechariah, quote, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water, unquote. Zechariah 9, verse 11. But since the psalm foretells the deliverance of those who were held captive in distant lands, and Zechariah comparing the Babylonish disaster into which the people had been plunged to a deep dry well or abyss, at the same time declares that the salvation of the whole church was an escape from a profound pit, I know not how it comes to pass that posterity imagined it to be a subterraneous cavern to which they gave the name of Lembus. Though this fable has the countenance of great authors, and is now also seriously defended by many as truth, it is nothing but a fable. To conclude from it that the souls of the dead are in prison is childish. And what occasion was there that the soul of Christ should go down thither to set them at liberty? I readily admit that Christ illumined them by the power of his Spirit, enabling them to perceive that the grace of which they had only had a foretaste was then manifested to the world 
And to this, not improbably, the passage of Peter may be applied, wherein he says that Christ, quote, went and preached to the spirits that were in prison, unquote, or rather, quote, a watchtower, unquote, 1 Peter 3, verse 19. The purport of the text is that believers who had died before that time were partakers of the same grace with ourselves, for he celebrates the power of Christ's death, and that he penetrated even to the dead pious souls, obtaining an immediate view of that visitation for which they had anxiously waited, while, on the other hand, the reprobate were more clearly convinced that they were completely excluded from salvation. Although the passage in Peter is not perfectly definite, we must not interpret as if he made no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. He only means to intimate that the death of Christ was made known to both. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton A.B. Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.